Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with a convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we're living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate, Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified revolutionary optimism as an infectious, contagious, self-created way of thinking and living on the path of love, where you unleash your personal power and you hashtag unify with others to build movements that catalyze bold and transformational political action, putting love at the center for our collective repair, justice, and peace. On this podcast, Dr. Zeitz is working to provide you with perspectives from leaders fighting for equity, justice, and peace on their strategies, insights, and tools for overcoming adversity and driving forward bold and transformative solutions with unbridled revolutionary optimism and real-world pragmatism. In this episode, he'll be talking with leaders in the racial equity movement for reparations and truth-telling, Professor Marcus Anthony Hunter, author and sociologist at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Dreesen Heath, the convener of the Why We Can't Wait Coalition, who will be providing us with the millennial generation of leaders' perspective on racial equity in the USA. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Welcome, uh, Dreesen and Marcus. How are you today? Peace. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Doing great. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so honored to have you both here. Uh, Both of you are my mentors, my teachers, and I think uh, we want to use this time together today to really Um, explore with you how you maintain yourselves as such strong leaders in this space. Um, So, Dreesen, if we could start off with you, I'd love to ask you, you know, you're you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I know that you've been working a lot on racial justice and racial equity from your hometown, and you're working on it nationally. I wondered if you could share a personal story, something maybe you haven't shared before, that uh, happened to you uh, in your life or an experience that really opened your heart and brought you clarity for uh, fighting for reparations and racial equity in the way that you do. Thank you so much, Paul. And, you know, being born in Tulsa uh, means so much to me. It's a, it's a meaning that I'm still realizing as every day comes. Um, It's a place that I didn't return to since my birth until my work brought me back. Um, So my parents had promised, you know, for years to take me back um, with them. And uh, eventually what actually brought me back was uh, the police killing of Terrence Crutcher uh, in 2016. 
And they're from there connecting the legacy of, you know, the current Tulsa Police Department to that of the Tulsa Police Department that also sanctioned and helped carry out the massacre in 1921. So these are these are deep connections. You don't know where you're from until you really step foot in that place and space and absorb that ancestral energy, absorb that community, build with that community. And, you know, I've had my fair share of jolting experiences through life, both, um, you know, negative racist interactions, but also just being submerged in a place where, you know, growing up, I'm maybe the only Black uh, girl in my classes or one of two you know, where my my education, my, my grandmother was a 30 plus year history teacher. So reading those books on her library shelf, you know, about bl- the Black Power Movement, um, about Angela Davis and abolition, um, even though, you know, <laughs> my grandmother was a little conservative herself, that inspired me in ways that you know, are carrying out and manifesting today. Um, but there's everything from the interaction of being called the N-word in, the, in line at a Panera bread, uh, just trying to get my, you know, Caesar salad and, and, and broccoli and cheddar soup to, you know, what some people call the covert racism that you experience in workplaces that I don't think anything is covert if you're able to name it and it's able to have an impact and hurt. And so, you know, just being a younger Black woman in this space, in this world, having to navigate those layers of, you know, is she competent? Is she enough? Um, Constantly having to live up to those questions, I think, to me, propel me into a space of, you know what, I'm here for my people. I'm going to lead my way towards you all understanding that, yes, I am enough and I am competent and I am doing it in the interest of my people and, and justice for all. Thank you so much for sharing that deep, deep uh, experience and uh, the clarity of your life experience brings you clarity for the action you do. Marcus, you and I both grew up in Philadelphia, probably in very different worlds. So I'd love to hear from you about your upbringing and your early life. And uh, were there any formative moments or experiences that really that you could share with our audience today that brought you into your leadership role on racial justice and equity? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. And it is extremely wonderful to be in Dreesen's company uh, as well. For my part, uh, I often just refer to myself as a regular, schmegular, degular Black person. And um, growing up in South Philly, I just understood that Black people were a range of experiences, that there were people who were doctors, lawyers, teachers, but also people who were struggling with substance abuse or what I often refer to as just self-medication. And in the process of living in that environment, I experienced homelessness and myriad other things that are probably unsurvivable. And so a part of my journey has always been asking, like, you know, why am I here? Like, why have I survived these things? And the answer that always comes is because, you know, folks need whatever assistance I can provide. And it always reminds me that, like, 
none of us are starting from a place of like, we, we were born with this cape on and we just started flying out of the womb. You know, it is this experience of living a very ordinary life and recognizing that there are not a lot of people who come from your experience advocating for the community that you know in your heart to exist and finding pathways to make that happen. And so anytime I've ever been asked to be of service, the answer is almost always yes. And so part of the journey for me was literally receiving a phone call from Congresswoman Barbara Lee to be of service. And when she called me, I I just cleared my schedule. I hopped on a plane and I just made it happen. And you don't know where it's going to take you. You know, you don't know who you're going to meet along the way. And so part of the adventure for me was like all of the people you meet along the way and all of their life experience, which has really taught me that so many of us think that because we're in so many silos and our communities are often isolated from each other, we don't realize how much love there is across communities and across groups and how really, honestly, I find more people than not that actually want to live in a better place than we are, want people to have a better life than we're having. And when you connect with that, you start to realize that you have way more support out there than you feel. And so for me, a big part of it is just always guiding myself with the power of love and trying to spread that as much as possible. Because I just think that love is the, the largest, most awesome power there is. And it is the thing that we all know to be true. So if you can spread that and use your experience as a way to say, I'm guided by love, despite all that has happened to me, I center love as how I move forward rather than hate or pain or trauma. Um, and so, as we all know, this is a lot of heart space work. So when you're working in that space, it's always important to try to be as open, as capacious as possible, because there are so many challenges. There are so many roadblocks. There are so many obstacles and there's so many opportunities to get turned back. But then you come to a point where you're like, I haven't come this far. You know, like you, I, I cannot be brought this far to be turned back. Yeah, thank you. So both of you uh, have had your li lived experiences, obviously, but there was something that you both said, which was that you took it upon yourselves to take in the whole community, that you didn't stay focused on your own survival or your own, you know, situation. You transformed into, I'm going to, I have to look at this as uh, from a community or a collective's perspective. And I think that's really kind of a beautiful insight, you know, that you had that opportunity and you took it, you know, you had to choose that in some ways. You didn't have to have that. And I appreciate that about both of you. Um, so let's fast forward all the way up to May 26, uh, 2020, uh, on the horrible day where George Floyd was murdered in clear, plain sight. And the subsequent uh, racial reckoning uh, that unfolded, the largest mobilization, I think, in the world world's history, where people were marching all over the country and even around the world to try to uh, address this, this crime that we witnessed. And I think there was like a sense of possibility at that time as well. So, uh, Dreesen, I know that you've been, you've been working, the reparations agenda has been a long-standing agenda since the time of the Emancipation Proclamation and and then all the way to 1989, when John Conyers introduced the first uh, resolution in Congress, or bill rather, to establish a reparation study commission. Uh, I'd like to ask you to share, like, what was going on for you 
around uh, late May, June, and in that that season of racial reckoning, the pain of it and the, and the promise of it. Can you share your views of what happened then and for you personally and then for the movement? You know, May 2020 was one indelible in my um, memory. And it's also because, you know, two months prior to George Floyd's public murder, um, Breonna Taylor was killed in her apartment March 13th, 2020. And that was a case that did not go public until um, months later. Um, but folks in her community knew what was going on. And therefore, you know, a lot of grassroots organizers were aware and had already been organizing in that area. And so for me, this is a woman my, my age. And I'm thinking of my livelihood as well in connection with hers um, and thinking that could have been me the same way I thought about Sandra Bland and was so obsessive over that case and, you know, just could not put it together of why this was happening. You know, quite frankly, you know, I'm tired of Black death being a spectacle that we all have to absorb and see in order to actually see <laughs> um, the lived experiences of Black people and the continued legacy of enslavement in this country. I feel like, you know, it's almost been, Black death has almost been a function of our democracy in a way because Black exploitation is so interconnected with, you know, the way the economy works and the way the political systems work. And so literally at the time of um, Floyd's murder, I was writing and releasing um, on May 29th, the case for reparations in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, mm. the rights or argument. No coincidence, right? Because police kill people, three and a half people every day. So, you know, you are bound to have a police killing, maybe overlap. But in terms of that kind of surgence happening at once, where there is a clear case for reparations that is also connected from, you know, enslavement to the massacre in Tulsa to present day police violence. No one, you know, you don't dream up these things. You don't, these are nightmares, right? And mm -hmm. so that also... In, in that intense work and in that rollout of that report, then that was also a call to action nationally where, you know, I, I don't see it as the reckoning yet because we don't have reparations uh, and there's no reckoning without reparations in my book. But I think we, you know, there was energy and that energy was funneled into the streets. So by day, <laughs> I'm writing the report, editing the report, doing interviews, and by night, I'm in the streets. And those were sleepless nights um, in D.C. around that time. And so launching then out of that space, that became a propeller to garner people's energy around reparations. This is a clear vestige, ongoing um, vestige of slavery, the conditions for which George Floyd was killed in that his community being riddled with poverty, there being displacement um, in terms of housing in his past, 
all of these um, making up the case for reparations um, in a comprehensive form. So then that led to launching, you know, the Why We Can't Wait Coalition, mm. which the the initial sign-on letter in July of 2020 garnered over 350 signatories. And these were organizations who work on racial justice issues, but most of whom never touched reparations or the issue of repair. And so it was really a moment to educate and bring people in to, if you're working on racial justice issues, reparation is a part of that equation. We can't realize equity without repair. And so how can we band together, again, in this spirit of collectivism, intersectionality, to actually, you know, bolster a movement that has had, you know, decades of, of work and scholarship, but in terms of the, the, the movement across, you know, the country and making these connections, I didn't see it always there. And I also wanted to create a space for people to actually feel like they had a a space to come into the movement, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a struggle when you want to support something and you don't know how to get in, you don't know how to support. And so creating that space, you know, was incredibly important. And I, you know, just had the opportunity to bring folks together around that. And um, so it was a huge catalyst, Um in a way, but also unfortunate that it took, you know, again, the re-traumatization of the Black population and others um, for, you know, people to spring into action. Yeah, thank you for that. I heard your comment about it wasn't a racial reckoning, so I, I want to correct the record. I agree with you. What, how would you frame that period of time? It was a racial, there was something that happened, and I would love to hear your characterization of that. Uh, if you have one. Uh, yeah, I don't have a specific word, um, okay. but, but there was movement and there was energy. There was a surge of momentum. There was a surge. Um, yeah. And, you know, some policy proposals ca- were able to capitalize on it. Others were not. But ultimately, I think people were able to see each other. Yeah. Um, people were able to build relationship, which was the which is the undergirding of any um, transformative policy or change. Great point. And I want to just also acknowledge the years of work that you had done to prepare for the Tulsa reparations uh, presentation that you mentioned and all the work that you had been doing, you and many others on the national reparations movement. So because of that readiness, you were able to seize the moment when the energies opened up, you were able to create a pathway of engagement for people to really take action. So I think that's really an important kind of uh, lesson there. And I want to like pass it over to Marcus now, because I think it was kind of similar in uh, the work that you were doing and then that moment. So I'd love to hear from you about that moment for you personally, and also uh, how that affected the policy trajectory. Of, of your leadership. Yeah, I echo so much of what both of you have said already. Um, I agree on the racial reckoning frame. Uh, I sort of think, you know, we're still in it. We just have been distracted by so many different things, including an insurrection, a presidential election, 
vote counts and such. So it's been really hard to, as they say now, keep that same energy. So I think it's the racial reckoning is not a moment in time, but instead an error that we're still in, I think. That said, to be completely honest, uh, I have never watched more than maybe 20 seconds of George Floyd being murdered. It is not my practice to watch people be killed. Uh, And so I just took everyone's word for it. You know, I grew up in a community where people were killed all the time and where police did very dangerous and terrible things uh, and often terrorized communities. And so when I heard the, you know, the kind of plot line and the narrative, you know, I don't need to be convinced. And I always thought that the video was really a demonstration that so many people need to be convinced that Black people are not making this up. And because that video was there, it finally broke that wall of needing to be convinced. And I saw the march, the protests, the activism as a reminder of the kind of takeaway from uh, the Bible of how, you know, watch what I will do on your behalf. What I mean is I saw people who were not Black out activating for Black people. And that was a nice change, you know, to see people doing work for Black people. Because the other reason why we weren't seeing Black people like that on this issue is because we were the ones who were dying the most during the pandemic. So you're getting killed in the street, but then you are getting killed if you just breathe the air. You know, and so do you go out and protest something you've been protesting the entire time you've been here or do you watch as others do it on your behalf? And I thought that that was the most moving for me because it was the first time in my lifetime I saw people from other demographic categories being activated and protesting on behalf of the black experience. And I found that to be very heartwarming, despite the tragedy that had made that happen. At the same time, uh, Congresswoman Lee had been working on the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Resolution for about two and a half years. And the convergence of the high and disproportionate rates of Black people being killed by coronavirus and then Mr. Floyd being murdered by the police created a convergence where it was time to introduce this uh, to Congress. And so that June, she introduced it. She told us in response that she felt that it was time, you know, to really get the truth out, that we really go hard at it, especially because what we don't want to happen is not to learn the lesson from South Africa, where we saw the truth without reparations. We don't want to do reparations without the truth, because part of what happens is then you get the most robust healing that is possible. And what we want is to, in my view, no longer play injured on the field that we call the world stage. That, you know, if you're a professional sports athlete, you do not play with a torn ACL or a sprained ankle or a broken knee. But as America, that's exactly how we've been playing all of this time with tons of injuries and convinced, convincing ourselves through a steady diet of misinformation and distraction. We're fully equipped. We can handle it. Our past is reconciled. We're all good. 
We didn't ha- we don't have anything to do with what happened before. But the problem is, is that, you know, slavery was a building. If you imagine just a building, you blow it up, but you don't clean up the debris. So it's everywhere. It's on everything. And so many other institutions in America were really set up to reinforce the legally sanctioned idea of enslavement. So when we think about our schools, hospitals, churches, and all of these other institutions that are core to our society, we must remember that they also were complicit, if not involved, in enslavement because it was the law of the land. So that's the other part that I think people don't understand is that reparations is calling for the repair And to support that is to make the truth of the fact, you know, the fact is self-evident. Enslavement was constitutionalized. It was legalized. It was permitted and sanctioned. And until we really document that, which every time I hear argument about this fact, it says this is why we need a truth commission. Somebody has to document this, memorialize it, make it available to the public so we can stop debating facts and instead start debating the future, how we want to transform and prevent and mitigate all of this from happening again. Because as Dreesen said, what we see happening in Ferguson with Mike Brown, what we see happening with Laquan McDonald in Chicago, what we saw happen in Texas with Sandra Bland, what we're seeing happening with Breonna Taylor and then George Floyd is just residuals of the enslavement process, of it being permitted and legalized. And rather than thinking about them as separate, what if they're all connected at the same source That means that we can actually do something about it. So I see it as an opportunity for us to be empowered in the truth that it really is what is holding us back. The lack of repair and truth about what America is built on. (laughs) I'm breathless from both of you uh, with inspiration. And I do want to get into a question about where do you think we're at right now? It's now... 2023, it's like three years since that energy surge and momentum surge, which I think uh, the work that you're leading on with on reparative justice for radical reparations and radical truth-telling, we've made a lot of progress. Uh, uh, The movements have made a lot of progress in the last three years on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a long way to go. We're not there yet. So, and we haven't broken through. And, you know, you talked about the January 6th insurrection and the election and all that. There's a racial, a racist undertone uh, that is kind of dividing the country right now, but it's overt. It's like public. (laughs) And then there's this whole pushback against critical race theory and all these other kind of attacks on the agenda of racial equity and racial justice. You know, some people say that that's a backlash and we have to be cautious. Other people say, well, that's a sign of our success and we have to keep going. Um, So I'd love to hear from you both. Uh, We'll go back to you, Dreesen. Where do you think we're at? What do you think needs to happen to win, to get victory on this agenda of reparative justice that is essential for the health of our country, for the health of the people and the well-being of the people and for our all the issues that we care about. Can I just say first how just inspired I always and enamored I am by my brother Marcus over here. Um, And it just, you know, sends chills down my spine a bit. Um, Hearing the love through the the urgency in your voice. And um, I just want to honor that. 
in terms of, you know, how we win, right? I think we're winning every day by still being here, right? I don't know exactly how I'm still here, right? I don't know how my familial lineage survived the transatlantic slave trade, survived segregation in Arkansas, survived the plantations in Arkansas and in Eastern Shore, Maryland, right? For me to be here. That is a win. And so when I woke up today, that was a win. And uh, to see and have this conversation is a win. There's still threats and things out there, right, uh, to these conversations and to these actions. But we are able to talk about this freely in a way where um, I'm in the safety of, of housing right now and I'm not going to be necessarily lynched for, you know, for speaking out on this right now. And so, but how how that then looks collectively, I mean, we're in a situation, we, we, you've spoken about the insurrection, we've spoken about the book bans. Um, we're in a situation where it's repair or destruction. These are the only two paths we have. And there's no middle road. There's either you're going to turn left or you're going to turn right. You know, I just feel like, at a time where, again, autocracy is banging on the door um, and there's still resistance to any source of sharing of resources, any collectivism and any um, shared economics, right, that benefits marginalized communities. Um, we're heading towards the, the population shift, right, in, in 20. 45, 2050, where the minority becomes the ma majority. Um, and marginalized populations uh, are going to be the ones you see the most and are going to be represented in the numbers if counted right through, uh, you know, mechanisms like the census and, and serve American community surveys and others. Um, and so at that, at this juncture, it's dire. And therefore, the truth-telling piece is incredibly important. There's no coincidence that, um, you know, over 44 states have either implemented or uh, are thinking through steps for, for banning of, of books um, or, you know, any laws around, um, you know, banning teaching certain history. There's no coincidence that that has happened at the same time the reparations movement is, is gaining its most steam, right? These are reflections of what my ancestors went through and what the society went through during Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction. This is, we repeat the same cycles over and over. Progress, resi white resistance. Progress, white resistance. Realization, white resistance. And so there's going to need to be sacrifice from people to give up something for the collective. You know, and when I think about winning, I do think about sacrifice. And it, it's it's hard to, you know, think about sacrifice when you're a household that, you know, doesn't have it, that could barely meet their bills, that could um, barely get something to eat. And I'm not even talking about those people per se, like sacrificing any economic or, or social standing. But I am talking about people sacrificing their individual situation in order to realize what it takes for, for all boats to lift up. 
um, and for us all to be sailing into a place of opportunity, into a place of acceptance and understanding, into a place of compassion, people's people's willingness to see each other for who they are is embedded in whether or not they're going to be violent or not because of either a lack of resources or because they're institutionalized in a place that encourages um, means of social control through violence. So winning also means <laughs> realizing reparations. And we, we have to get around um, to that as a part of this, this truth-telling and hearing and exposing, right? Um, I... I just came back from the Manzanar pilgrimage with um, Japanese American descendants and community members whose, you know, relatives were incarcerated at Manzanar. Manzanar was over 11,000 people incarcerated there uh, during World War II. Um, you know, the executive order 9066, which wrongfully incarcerated and removed Japanese Americans. Um, in that space, right, we're talking about concentration camps on U.S. soil. 20 years prior, in 1921, there were concentration camps in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so we get to this point where um, we're mobilizing for truth-telling and reparations, but we're still trying to get people to even realize, like, <laughs> things that we've seen abroad, that we've shamed about, that we've said never again— happen in the U.S. And so until we have that actual, um, you know, reckoning with that information, with people's lived experiences here, you know, we can't even fully grasp what's happening abroad or make the steps necessary to, to actually rectify our situation. Thanks, Greeson. Yeah, that was helpful. Marcus, over to you for the state of the moment and the prospects for uh, success going forward. Yeah, I echo everything that uh, Dreesen said as she was talking about the winning and the everyday winning of being present and accounted for, like the, the doors of the church are open. You know, I don't even know how you really follow that because that is that is deep wisdom. Um, one thing I like to do, and uh, Paul, you know this, is the power of words. Uh, and one fact about a word that I want to point out is the difference between a lie and the truth. The word lie, L-I-E, we will say lies, S, true, T-R-U-T-H. If folks look at those words, the word truth shares no letters with the word lies, no letters at all. So it's telling you it's an entirely different enterprise. Lies lack integrity, ethics, and seriousness, but they often guide us. They're the things that really stoke fear. And part of what the truth and reparations are up against is the massive diet of fear that is fed to the American population and the population abroad that tells people if Black people, African-Americans, were to receive any kind of reparations, it would be at your expense. Except we know that American, America can afford it. America affords things all the time, especially when it's situated as a crisis. And for me, the way in which Black people have been left to fend for themselves without proper representation in the government, without political parties that actually represent their interests, without the infrastructure of equity that is necessary, is really a fundamental problem that has to be addressed. 
that I think has created a bottleneck in terms of we think about like a freeway, and I like the word freeway because the word free is in front of it, a pathway to freedom, that there's a bottleneck in that highway, that freeway, because we have Black people who have been here for so long needing anti-poverty measures, needing housing access, needing education measures, waiting in line. And oftentimes, and this is something I talk about in my book, Radical Reparations, 1865 to the present, Black people have been waiting for over 83 million minutes. 83 million minutes. Then when you go to trillions, like 5 trillion seconds. People can't stand waiting 5 minutes for, you know, the grocery line. 10 minutes to see the doctor. We know from hospital research and research on hospitals that wait time kills people. So there are people who wait in urgent care for hours and they die because of that waiting process. Just hours can kill you in the urgent care. 83 million minutes we've been waiting and patiently waiting, I think. And so as a result, I think people really should understand that there are a series of lies that prevent us from understanding things. For example, one of the lies that goes around is that there are not policies available to us that can be enacted to address these situations. But unlike the civil rights movement, which is very popularized, the civil rights movement had the activism and then the legislation had to emerge after they proved themselves. We're in a very good space of having a fortunate possibility of there are policies that are already in Congress. People can go to congress.gov and see some of the most progressive policies that we've seen in America. We have a president who has made racial equity a key pillar to assess his effectiveness by. He's announced it. He hasn't said the word reparations. He hasn't said the word truth, but he said racial equity, judge me by that. And so I think what we see is there's fertile soil that can be really activated on to make a lot of these policies happen. We have the George Floyd policing reform bill. We have H.R. 40. You have truth, racial healing transformation. You have John Lewis Voting Rights Act and myriad other policy, GI repair bill. There's so many different options out there. So it's not because we have a lack of, of solutions. So winning to me is like going through that progressive agenda and enacting them one by one by one by one or together in some kind of omnibus purpose where you just bring all of them together where it's build back better isn't just about bridges and roads in terms of concrete structures, but bridges between each other, roads between each other, access points between each other so that we start to see ourselves as connected and aren't so easily distracted. And the last lie I will visit with is the lie of whiteness. Whiteness is a fabrication. It is made up. And time and time again, a history we've repeated is the lie of whiteness nearly eradicating the entire Jewish race. That is the problem of whiteness. Whiteness is what led people to insurrect. They believe it. And they're fed a constant diet that this is real. It is not real. It was only made to create a human hierarchy so that there are people on top and people at the bottom. And it makes you feel better about the people on the bottom not exactly being human, but it has been at the expense of large numbers of people. And until we really start visiting with things that lack integrity, ethics, and seriousness, we are gonna be in a constant battle because whiteness is not the truth. Humanity is the truth. The human race is the truth, not these other fabrications. And we have policies that are out there that can be enacted, but there's so much distraction going on that the hope is that people start to tap in and start to see what's available and hold their elected officials accountable for enacting these things to make the president answer questions, not 
his press secretary, but him, answer questions. Where do you stand on truth telling? Where do you stand on a truth commission? Where do you stand on reparations? Where do you stand on a reparations commission? Where are you on these matters? You say racial equity, but a Juneteenth is great, but we all want to celebrate Juneteenth with reparations, okay? Like just having a holiday is not enough. Where are you in terms of a plan, strategic action on how to make these things feasible and realizable for the entire American population? Thank you, Dreesen and Marcus, for joining me today on Revolutionary Optimism Podcast. Now I'm going to do a quick diagnostic review. And as you know, revolutionary optimism is a new syndrome that I've discovered within myself, and I've realized it is an infectious, contagious, self-created way of thinking and living on the path of love where you unleash your personal power in whatever way you choose. So I would like to start off by summarizing some of the key messages and the key lessons uh, that uh, Marcus and Dreesen provided to us. First of all, I think they really clarified uh, their a vision of reparative justice and a call for radical reparations and radical truth-telling. Uh, at the time when George Floyd was uh, killed and murdered in clear view, they clarified that in their minds, there was a surge of momentum that awakened a still unfolding uh, process of a racial reckoning. So we're, in, we're on that journey now. I think that's a really important uh, clarification for me. They also um, clarified that we're all going to need to sacrifice something and give something up in order to seize the collective opportunity that we have to make sure that all boats are rising. I think that's a really important message that they provided. And I lastly, I'll say in summary of what they said is that we're living in this auspicious moment of possibility and it's a dire situation. We have to choose repair or destruction. And we're living in a time where there is overt ra racism being propagated by the MAGA movement that is dividing the country and we are on the cusp of an autocracy if we don't seize this moment and implement reparative justice as uh, was discussed. In terms of lessons learned from Marcus and Dreesen, I would say that both Dreesen and Marcus had upbringings where they were submerged in a culture of racism, either in Philadelphia or Tulsa on the Eastern shore or in Arkansas, and their personal experiences of racism actually clarified for them that they were gonna take this on for their entire community and they were gonna proceed forward with collective action. And that was a choice that they made at a certain time of their lives. They had their own experience and they could have stayed just with that. And they chose to take on collective uh, transformation and to ensure that everyone in their community and our country uh, can be freed from the shackles of racism. Um, they clarified that uh, the political mobilization for reparative justice that is underway right now is linked to our, their ancestors and all of our ancestors, and that there is a through line through history of legally sanctioned racism from the time of slavery 
which was legalized as part of our constitution and as part of our legal system through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow. There was progress during the civil rights era, but we have a long way to go. And now we're dealing with mass incarceration and entrenched poverty of uh, people of color. And so uh, it's important to understand that this advocacy is linked to the whole story of the American journey. And lastly, I would, I would like to say that uh, I learned from them that, that what's driving them is love. Love is the guiding power. Love is the thing and the power of love is what is calling them as the opportunity to move forward with a opportunity that we have to realize equity. And that requires repair, reparative justice, radical reparations, and radical truth-telling. So without a doubt, both Dreesen and Marcus are of the highest order revolutionary optimists. And I encourage you to listen and learn from them as I do every time I'm with them. Thank you and have a great week. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. If you like this show, be sure to follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Revolutionary Optimism, transforming the world one episode at a time.